I jumped out of planes. I slid out of helicopters. Repel out of helicopters. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I, I've never, I never went skydiving before, man. So <laughs> yeah. Tell, t- tell us about that, man. What? You, you're, you're up there in the air. They open the door. So, <laughs> There's only clear, one way down. To be clear, at West Point, we had a 10 meter board we could opt to go off of, and I didn't go off of it because I was scared of heights. And so we were snowboarding, which is when you get to a unit early, early, and there's, they don't have anything to do. They just have you do our jobs. So one of our classmates found like 30, like 25 airborne slots. It's like, hey, great, we got airborne slots. I'm like, I don't want to go to airborne school. But everyone else was going, and I was like, yeah, I'll go too. So you get there, and what the Army does is they give you a lot of training, which is a good lesson for life. So you train to fall out of a plane for three weeks. Mm. So you, you practice small jumps, you practice high jumps, you get on a tower, you jump. So by the time you get to the date, you're pretty well trained in all the critical tasks on if something goes bad, like you're a toe jumper, because there's a static line that releases and sometimes it doesn't release. Welcome to the Started Somewhere podcast. I'm your host, Ross Alex. This is episode 41. And today, my friends, we have Broderick Norman coming out of Southeast Texas. Broderick is a real estate investor who specializes in buying land. That's one thing Broderick loves to do is buy lots and lots of land. In this episode, Broderick shares with us his strategies, his methods, why he buys land, what he does with it, and how he turns it into some big, big profits. He has an amazing story that he shares with us, including the time he spent as a United States Army officer graduating from the West Point Military Academy He actually played some football there. And uh, he just has an overall great story, super inspiring, super interesting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Today's episode is sponsored by my good friend, Anthony Mann, who's an expert real estate marketer over at his company, A Social Strategy. Listen, if you're in the real estate market, mortgage industry, or a real estate investor, They are the go-to players in the game for you. When it comes to lead generation, my friends, they're not your typical company that's going to charge you monthly retainers with hopes and prayers that they generate you enough leads to keep you happy. No. They actually put their money where their mouth is. You see, they're going to book you appointments directly on your calendar, pre-qualify every single lead, and work with those leads until they become your client, all without you ever having to pick up the phone or text anyone up front. The best part, if you're not successful working with them, they make zero dollars. That's right, zero dollars. If you're interested in learning more about them and their programs, head over to asocialstrategy.com. I'm going to link that down below in the show notes and take action, my friends. Enjoy the show. All right, Broderick, welcome to the show, man. Oh, thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. My man. Dude, we go back, bro. We do. (laughs) Yeah. We go back. Yeah, way (laughs) back. Jet ski days, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whenever someone invites me out to an impromptu time to get off and have some fun, I try to take them up on it. You never know what you'll find out. Hey, man, that's absolutely right, brother. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show, man. Really excited to share your story with the listeners. Um, You know, we're both in real estate, obviously. Um, 
You know, we both know each other's stories. But for the people that aren't familiar with you or aren't familiar with your work, can you give us a brief overview of what you've been up to in your business? Sure, what I've been up to. Um, I am, you know, a land guy. So I'm a real estate investor like you. I mean, the object at some point is to buy and buy low and sell high or buy high and sell higher and depending on time frame. So what I've been up to most recently is, is pr primarily doing land deals. So I don't know if land developer or flipper or, or you know, ranchette maker is a proper term, but what I do is I buy and sell um, ranchettes. So we buy larger tracts of land, anywhere from 10 to more, you know, our sweet spots to the 50 to 150 acre track. And then we sub that into smaller tracks and sell it either cash or seller finance. I think, which gives us a lot of uh, a lot of variability in how we can move our product. Mm. And how long have you been in the land business? Well, you know, in the land business, primarily it's two years, but I've always been centered around land and agriculture. I don't know if you know this, but when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a cowboy. And so when I got to high school, you know, I signed up for FFA and I raised show steers and show cattle. Mm. I scrambled at Houston. I had the grand champion steer our local show, and I did livestock judging. So I was all set into that lifestyle, something I've always loved. And it's something I always thought I'd return to later on in life. And so when that opportunity came, I think I was already yoked mm. to go on the land. And, and what is FFA? FFA is so in Texas and a lot of rural places. We have FFA, Future Farmers of America, the guys with the blue jackets. It's a high school organization that promotes agriculture, agriculture living, and learning about agriculture. A lot mm -hmm. of places they may have 4-H and they work in concert. 4-H is more so for younger kids up to high school level, whereas Future Farmers of America is from freshman year in high school through senior in high school. Mm, okay. So you've always been around land and countryside and been into that whole cowboy lifestyle on the ranch then i have i mean we lived in the suburbs to be true mm. but my grandpa had three acres and so when i moved out of galveston into the suburbs his house was midway between where i grew and where i live and he had three acres which isn't a lot but it provided a lot of opportunity so i'd bail hay in the summer i'd ride he taught me how to ride a horse how to catch a horse salve him we'd go on these long rides and it really helped fill a void. I had my life for a strong male figure. And so I've always identified very strongly with that lifestyle. And I think there's a certain aspect of Texas where everybody wants to have a piece of land. Mm. And we try to fulfill that, mm. fulfill that need that a lot of people have. You know, couple years back i had the opportunity to go out to bandera texas okay yeah i went to rancho cortez out there for yes. the weekend wow one of the best trips of my life man i had so much fun like it, it so cool. what you like about it so the horseback riding through hill country was just yes. top notch like there's nothing like that waking up early morning jumping on a horse because it was my first time riding a horse so at first yeah i'm scared thinking this thing's gonna yeah. take off but the horses they're so trained they're yes like, they're like autopilot they just follow the other horses i couldn't <laughs> yeah, believe exactly. it it was amazing yes and uh the cabin lifestyle man just like there's no cell phone service right yes. so you're like off the grid and you just this is nice man like hill country is is beautiful you know it's I don't know. it is it's just uh, such well, a cool experience 
What about the stars at night? Stars at night, <laughs> by, the, by the bonfire man telling. Yeah. Kid, they got the the guy comes out and tells campfire stories and. Oh man. Yeah, it's just a good time, man. You know. It, it, it is, and it's it's one of those things that. You know, we we grow up thinking about it. It's one of those things that as we, you know, have urban sprawl and everything, they're less and less attainable, but it is still out there if you reach out and grab it. And so a lot of people, they've always had this idea, long ranger, being out west, off the grid, and they have that dream of being able to do that. And that's pretty mm. cool to experience that yourself. Yeah, man. You know, so I asked the, the owner of the place, because well, this guy just owns like, so much land, right? Yes. You drive for like 20 minutes, you're still in this guy's land. So yeah. I asked him, I said, you know, I'm curious, like, how much land do you own? He said, son, when you ask a man how much land he owns, that's like asking him how much money he's got in his yeah. bank account. I'm <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm like, whoa. Yep. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is so true. How much land you own or how many heads you have, yeah. asking him how much money he's got in his bank account. Yeah. Those are those yeah. are points of, uh, of, of pride. Yeah. That's uh. It's a, it's a very interesting culture, man. Um, yeah. You know, so that's super cool. Um, so you've been in land business for a while, going really well. We just talked before the call, and you're putting up some incredible numbers in the in the land space, man. Like, holy smokes. Um, you know, just it's really cool to see what you've been oh, up to. Oh, thanks, man. You know, thanks. most people in real estate project, like, they gravitate towards residential. Yes. Um Right now, with everything going on with COVID and the way you know the economy is right now, do you think there's advantages to being in the land business versus the housing business, or vice versa, or does it just not matter at all? I think so, and to be true, that's where I started. So I started in real estate as a wholesaler. I mean, I you know blocking and tackling. I think that's a great way to start because we learn the business you know, from the inside out. I mean, contract, my first contract I wrote, I lost $5,000 because I didn't understand what option money was, right? And going hard and all that. I was, I was like, I lost $5,000 in my first contract, right? Wow. I wasn't very happy, but it was, as we say, tuition. But I started off wholesaling and then I, you know, a lot of wholesalers go, hey, I want to go from wholesaling to rehabbing. And I, I did okay. I struggled. I lost money on some deals, right? I made some money, but I found that I was just moving money around. And there's reasons for that. I think those are very valuable lessons. Um, a great a great idea, poorly implemented, can create non-optimal results. And maybe I would have done better if I'd stuck with that, but I thought it wasn't quite, you know, those attributes of it that were less than ideal for me, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and that's not to talk about anybody that, that wholesales or wholesaling I loved. But what I was challenged for me was scaling that model, right? Mm. So I loved wholesaling. I love talking to people, but scaling that model was challenging. And so my natural attribute, my natural next step from that was, was rehabbing. Well, rehabbing was fun. It wasn't naturally something I was good at because mechanically, I'm not mechanically inclined. It's just not something I've, I've been good at. I know that about myself. Mm. I can look at things and see if they're right or not, but I don't really get excited about fixing stuff myself. That's just not my forte. I love negotiating contracts. I love seeing stuff evolve, creating things. But if that's not my natural thing, the guy that loves it is going to kick my butt every time. Right. If that makes sense. And that so that was a evolution for me. And what I found in land is it's very scalable. 
I wasn't great at keeping my numbers, but as I looked at the deals that I did that were lot deals and smaller land deals, they had the best margins, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So sorry, those my phone ringing. But um, so if you say those are the deals with the highest margin and the interesting thing enough, and I'm turning this off, Ross, I don't want to be rude. I apologize. No, no interesting thing enough. And this is crazy. When I first started, my grandpa said, you need to go buy lot, lots at the county courthouse steps. Like, no, that didn't make sense. Whatever. Well, I wish I had listened to him because my lot deals, as I wholesaled, right, I would buy my lot deals at a third and sell them at a half. And people are like, why does that make sense? And I was like, okay, if I'm a, there's a lot of people that have struggled rehabbing. Engineers, you're buying whole people. They've said, hey, this doesn't work for me. So I would sell my small land deals as flips. And I'd say, okay, I don't know when you're going to make your money, but you'll double it. Might be two years, might be three years, might be five years, but you're not going to lose money. You'll double it. So I would negotiate hard on the way in because it's land and I would get them at a third and I'd sell them at half. Now, was I leaving money on the table? Yes. But I was also making the money that was on the table, which mm. is part of the aspect of being a wholesaler. So that's how I did that business. And then I looked eventually, I was like, whoa, I can make money doing that. Right. And so that was some of the things that planted the seed. And I think, you know, increases as I look at my business. I think one of the key things is let your business take you where it needs to take you. Mm. Right. So if right now rehabbing is doing great and that's something that I think someone feels great at and they're comfortable with the margins and the scalability and, and, and a couple other things, then follow that, you know take it to where it leads you and it'll lead you some great places because I think sometimes we try to force our business certain ways and we don't listen to what the business is telling us. Hmm. So I, I don't know if that, I mean, I can answer the question, but I think that's a better way to answer the question. So as we look at our business, just listen to the numbers, right? They speak loudly, right? And so it can take you ways. And I think to really answer that question, it's not just what you do, it's how we structure it, right? Because to compare rehabbing and wholesaling to what I'm doing now is challenging because one, it's working a lot better. So it's obviously, it's easier to say I love what I'm doing now, but my structure has changed. I was working by myself when I was rehabbing, right? I was taking private loans, I was doing all that. I over leveraged, right? It got me in a pickle. You. You know, if you talk to Eddie Gant, who's a great guy, said one of the ways you can screw up in this business is over leverage. Easiest way. Mm. You're the borrower everyone loves, right? You're making no money, but they love lending to you, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? So now I my structure, I partner on everything. I showed you one deal I did without a partner. And it was great, right? But at some points in that deal, it's like, that's why I have partners, right? Mm. So to compare that, if you ask me if what I'm doing, I mean, the backdrop and some of the macro stuff, now it's COVID, everybody wants to get out and everything else. But that same like macro situation applies to Airbnbs, right? So if you're doing Airbnbs now, you're probably doing pretty well. And does it kind of apply to rehabbing? Rehabbing's pretty hot too. There's a lot of stimulus in the market. So a rising tide's lifting a lot of ships but I feel pretty comfortable where my ship lies because it fits me. 
Mm. I love land. I got pictures. I mean, here's me with a heifer cat, you know, that's when I was 17 years old. It fits me. I can talk, talk, walk the walk. Mm. People know someone goes, I got, you know, I want to raise cattle. I go, what kind? <laughs> right. And I can ask that question. I didn't, so even, it I didn't me. even know there were different kinds. Of oh cattle. yeah. Like I just watched Dude, I'm so excited. I just bought three limousines. That's what I used to raise. I used to raise red. I bought some black ones. And I'm excited. So that fits me. I mean, I, awesome. it's and, that, it, and not to say it won't fit anybody else, right? If you're from New York and you come down here and you're like, hey, guys want land. I've always wanted land. That's your story. Mm. So the one thing I've always heard is no one can sell your story better than you, mm. right? But my story fits really well. I struggled. I pivoted. And it's working. That's awesome. I, does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm curious to, well, I have two, two follow-up questions. Number yeah. one, what are you doing right now to get in front of land owners to buy from them? Ross, man, you'd be crazy. We buy everything off MLS. MLS. Okay. That's awesome, man. MLS. That's so, awesome. you know, easy, easy I access, easy access, MLS, public, publicly available sources. I don't do any marketing for deals anymore mm. just because there's a lot out there and you can, you know, once you know what to look for and you find out what fits what you're used to looking for, there's plenty out there. Mm. And, and the markets change and, you know, you can do big deals, you can do small deals that you, that you develop. Um, but from that standpoint, it's probably not so much getting in front of landowners as it is getting in front of investors and getting the capital, mm. right? And then selling the, sell, you know, selling the eventual product, right? Right. Yeah, you know, in the housing market as a rehabber, yeah, it is nearly impossible nowadays to buy deals on the MLS in Houston. I can't speak for other markets unless you have some sort of system where you're the first offer to the table within five minutes of that listing going right. live. Yeah, I saw. I, I just talked about this on a previous episode. I saw a deal the other day. It, it gone in less than an hour, and it was a good yeah. one. And yeah, you know, it's just you got to be marketing in the offline world in the housing space. So it's it's really cool to hear that you're still able to make money, build your business using MLS to buy land. Well, there are deals that I've seen with houses, but they're different, right? So that if I was looking at housing deals, I'm looking for deals with houses with a lot of land, right? And we're subdividing, we're doing something different. Mm. So, and I would imagine in this environment, <clears throat> um, bigger houses, right? And I think the one thing is, is as we look at things and go, okay, this is this model, this model, this model, this environment that's got to change. And what I find is, you know, when I was a wholesaler, I different, differentiated myself, one, by being a good negotiator, where they're all good negotiators. And two, by doing difficult deals. Everybody wants more difficult deals. So I would imagine if I were to, you know, knowing what I know now, I think there's probably some housing deals that look different. And and one of the things that's really helped me catapult my business is mentors mm. and mentors who are used to looking at different types of deals. And I think that might, that might be something gotcha. that makes sense. Right? Now, my second question is... What do you think about buying land in places like New Hampshire, Maine, even maybe, you know, uh, Vermont in those uh, more mountainous terrain areas, like woodsy areas? So, so investing, right? Yeah. 
So the land is a raw product that goes to every construction, if that makes sense, right? Right. So <clears throat> when you talk about land, there's recreational land, there's land for homes, there's subdivision land. Right now, you know, I talked to my engineer and he says, he talked to a banker that says they're seeing more development deals than they can shake a fist at. So within that prism, there's a lot of things that factor in. It's doing a small subdivision of 10 to 20 houses, right? And so that would determine, what would determine that is looking at the housing things we're selling. Because in an area like Pasadena, which I know you love, Pasadena, Texas, mm. if you can't create, if you can't find product, you create product. One of my mentors told me in a, in a very mature market, it's hard to find distressed product. So what do you do? You go create the product. So we would team and I go, Ross, can you do new builds? And you go, I don't know. Let me see. And I go, okay, if I bring you 10 lots, can you make money? And you're like, well, that's different. Mm. Right? You're like, I'm used to selling houses here, but can I build them? And you go, Broderick, go find me 10 lots. Maybe not in Pasadena, but a little bit outside of Pasadena. And now we're dancing. Okay. So you're, you're, buying, you're buying land <sighs> specifically for housing purposes. It's, it's more so I got you. recreational purposes. So typically my stuff that's far out is hour and a half from Houston, two hours from Houston. And I try to be out, you know, hour and a half to two hours out of a, a, a metropolitan support area, MSA. Hmm. <clears throat> but I've also done stuff closer, right? You know, Galveston County, Brazoria County, that stuff is cooking. So it's, it's not just that, it's this, right? It's both. And sometimes you fall into them, you're like, wow, I didn't know that was great. So the key thing is in a mature market, where can you create a product? For a market, it's hard to find a stress product because you have more buyers, right? It's kind of definition of a mature market or or, or an increasing market. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hold on. So in my mind, in a mature market, you have to create product. Mm. So if you can't find X, you go find, you know, if you can't find three, you go find number one and number two and you put them together and you get number three. Gotcha. It's almost like it's almost like doing evaluation, right? There's comparable sales, cost of build, and income approach, right? You can't find any comparables, so you start looking for cost to build. There's dirt, there's wood that's put together a house. Mm. Gotcha, man. All right. So, yeah, and I and, and to answer your question, that will work in New Hampshire, that will work in Vermont. You know, assuming people live there and they want to live there, you can. I would imagine. I've always it. I've always thought about it because yeah. if you go on Zillow, you can find like ten acres for a couple thousand bucks. You know, in the woods. Yes. I was so talking about to, just buying it, just forget about it. And so hope, you just need to find someone that wants, you find 10, find someone that wants three, right? I, yeah, there you go. There you go. Or, you know, just, just keep it forever and just pass yeah. it down to your fan. Yeah. One day, they'll run out. You yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. I, I went to the land factory and they told me they're out. Roger, <laughs> <laughs> I want to switch gears here, man. You know, you, you shared with us what you're currently doing right now. But I want to go back in time, right? Yeah. You said that you grew up, you know, being, you wanted to be a cowboy, really big into agriculture. That was like one of your passions as a kid. At what point in your life did you, did you realize like, okay, I want to be in business. I want to be in the entrepreneurial space. Right. So like, first off, did you grow up in, uh, in, you grew up in Houston? I grew up Southeast Houston. Hometown. Yes. Okay. 
let's start at high school, high school times, right? How was high school for you? Were you high great school student? Fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, academically things came quickly to me. I mean, so it's like some guys and I don't, it's not like I'm smart. It's just God, you know, it comes quicker. Like building doesn't come quicker, right? It takes a while for me to get stuff. But academic grades were okay. I, I played football. I was, you know, a scrappy, just good enough football player to get interest. And um, I was recruited to go play football for United States Military Academy at West Point. So I was all set to go to Texas A&M to study agriculture. And um, Bob Sutton, who was uh, eventually defensive coordinator, or defensive coordinator then for Army, became head coach, my head coach. You know, then went out to the Jets and then went to Kansas City. He came down and recruited me, and I was like, okay, I'll try that. So I went to West Point, and that was way different. Uh, I left all the agriculture behind, although I showed up to get that basic training, and I had cow books coming to my uh, to my post office box. So everybody gave me a hard time. So, <laughs> so wait, I wanna I wanna I wanna back up here. So you're you're in high school, right? Academically, right. you're good, right? I'm good. Yeah, you're playing football. High yes. school football. Right. In Texas. Right. You're in Bradrick. I know you personally. Do You're a big fan. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by just good enough, bro. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're a big dude. Yeah. Um, so you're playing football, and one day a recruiter sh- shows up and says, hey, I want you to come play football for, for me at, it, it literally at is a like military that. academy. Really? So I was getting letters from Navy, and I was like, hey, no – I said, I don't, I'm never, I'm not going to military. And my mom was like, you should at least check it out. It's free. And we didn't come, like we weren't rich. Right. So check it out. And I'm like, I'm not going. And then Bob Sutton came and I had a little bit better perception of West Point, which held to be true. <laughs> and then uh, he literally, my coach grabbed me as I was walking to the parking lot and said, the army coach is here. He wants to talk to you. It's five-year commitment after school. Are you interested in that? We want to talk to him. I said, yes. And I walked into a room next to my coach's office. I walked through my head coach's office. It was me and another guy there, a buddy of mine who's also a senior. We had two other guys that were really good, but they were they were a little bit better of a college prospect. One was going to Texas Tech, another was going to Texas A&M. And this other guy and I were like, he's like, you want to come up and visit? And he's talked about West Point. I said, okay, when can we go up and visit? And other guy said, I'll think about it. And he didn't go. And he was like, that's one of the biggest mistakes he's ever made, right? Wow. Now, I went up and visited it, and I was homesick on my visit. I said, this place is horrible, but I think I'll go. And, yeah. uh, you know, the bonds is what really got me is relationships and everything like that. Now, and, and this was a free ride? It was 100% free. Well, it didn't cost anything. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Okay, so so you're, you're just good enough to play football. Yes. But somehow you get a hundred percent free scholarship, and I'm sure that's not the only offer you had on the table. But that's some academic, yeah. Yeah, but that's to go to the United States Mil- Military Academy at West Point. Yes, right? yes. And, and to be clear, everybody's there for free. No one pays to go to West Point. Nobody pays to go to West Point. No one go. But okay. to be recruited is, you know, it is. I mean, it's, right. it's challenging. I, I had, I didn't even know that uh, yeah. military academies are free. That's yeah, interesting. Um. Yes. Okay, so but there is a commitment afterwards, just to be clear, right? So you're in the army afterwards, which is to serve in the yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get the degree, but you then you have to serve. But you get to serve, right? You get right? to serve. You get to serve. You get yeah. to serve. 
<laughs> Don't do that to me. Bro. You get the surf. You get the pleasure of surfing yeah. in the military. Okay, so you you make the decision, right? Southeast Texas right. boy. Now you're yeah. up in New York, right? Which is by my yeah. neck of the woods, Hudson Valley. Yes. Yes. And you're at this school, and now you have to be there for what? Is it four year? Four. Four years. Yes. Four years. Okay. So how did that go for you, man? What was it like? Oh, dude, it was incredibly, incredibly hard. So I wasn't a good runner when I showed up. So the physical was tough. I thought because I was a football player, I wouldn't have to do a lot of things. <laughs> and I was very badly mistaken. As a matter of fact, in some ways you're a target because you're bigger than everybody else. And it was tough, man, Ross. I can't lie. It was really hard. It was difficult. Academics were hard. I mean, I was taking, you know, first semester, maybe 18, 19 hours. That went up to 20 uh, after second semester. My first class, my first day was gymnastics. And you see me, I'm not a gymnast, right? <laughs> it was hard. I mean, it was the worst grades I ever made and the most difficult. And, you know, I, I called home crying. I'm like, this is a hard place. And mm. my grandpa said, well, one, I didn't send you up there to do bad. And, it, you know, has anybody else ever made it out of there? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, you won't. You'll be the second. Mm. And so, um, and my mom told me, you know, at times I thought about quitting football because it was so tough with the academics. And she said, you know, nothing beats a quitter but a trier. And once you start quitting, it gets easy. So don't start. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Now, the difference between non-military colleges versus yeah. military ones, I'm sure, is, you know, the, the level of, right, uh, PT that you have to do, right? You have to... Yeah. actually work out and study yes. at the same time versus yes. kids probably waking up hungover on. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I start off as a defensive lineman. I was a scout team nose guard. So you're just getting beat up every day. Wow. So my first year, you know, I had, I'd get all these staff infections. My sheets would be spoiled. It was, it was not easy mm. uh, being a scout team nose guard. And then I switched over eventually to the offensive line. Wow. And, and, and what was your, uh, like, area of study, like, focus? So I studied political science. Um, I got a Bachelor of Science in Political Science. But at West Point, in academies, it's very difficult, different in that there's a lot of math. There's calculus, statistics, mm. chemistry, physics. So it's a real, it's a BS. And so we all have to take, at that point, an engineering track, and I took systems engineering. Wow. Okay. So poli-sci and systems engineering. Yes. Cool, man. Now going to West Point, right? When you when you come out, you do enter active duty U.S. Yes. Army, right? Yes. And what was that like for you? That was pretty cool. So by then, I figured out a lot more about the military thing, and I I really enjoyed it because I went to Fort Gordon. I was uh, spotted to be in a signal officer. Initially, I was supposed to go to U.S. Army Europe. That was uh, changed to the 101st Airborne Visionary Assault. Uh, the first summer, I got to go to airborne school, pretty much because I didn't want to show up to my unit without anything on my chest. <laughs> so I went to uh, parachute school at Fort Benning, Georgia, which was fun. And the military was really cool. I liked it. I, you know, at West Point, we had a certain idea of the military. But actually, getting out and getting the lead soldiers was really fun. So you, really you, you jumped out of planes. I jumped out of planes. I slid out of helicopters, 
repel out of helicopters. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I, I've never I never went skydiving before, man. So <laughs> yeah. Tell t- tell us about that, man. What you're, you're you're up there in the air. They open the door. So, <laughs> There's only clear, one way down. To be clear, at West Point we had a 10 meter board we could opt to go off of, and I didn't go off of it because I was scared of heights. And so we were snowboarding, which is when you get to a unit early, early, and there's, they don't have anything to do. They just have you do odd jobs. So one of our classmates found like 30, like 25 airborne slots. He's like, hey, great, we got airborne slots. I'm like, I don't want to go to airborne school. But everyone else was going, and I was like, yeah, I'll go too. So you get there, and what the Army does is they give you a lot of training, which is a good lesson for life. So you train to fall out of a plane for three weeks. Mm. So you, you practice small jumps, you practice high jumps, you get on a tower, you jump. So by the time you get to the date, you're pretty well trained in all the critical tasks on if something goes bad, like you're a toe jumper, because there's a static line that releases and sometimes it doesn't release. So by the time you get, you're pretty excited, but you also are in a stick with, you know, if memory serves me correct, 16, to th- well, 20 to 32 other people. So you all jump, if you've ever seen the video, all together, mm-hmm. right? So that makes it good because you're, you know, with a couple other people. And once you get up there, you can't really go down. There's only one way out of that plane. Yeah. But doing so and overcoming that is a tremendous feeling of accomplishment. And so I don't have a ton of jumps. I jump five times, which is the standard, you know, a couple of day jumps and night jumps as well. But it just, it was really accomplished. And all your career, you look and you see people with airborne wings, right? But when they put them on your chest, and you're like, I've done that with a lot of people. I've gone through those same, you know, I've been at Fort Benning just like other guys and Fort Benning, home of infantry, a storied place. I've done that. I've jumped out of a plane. It's just a lot of accomplishment. Wow. And even more so, so cool, when you, man. yeah, even more so when you get to a unit and your people see like, okay, he's willing to do stuff himself. It's a high level of, uh, right. Of, uh, and you said you've, you've jumped at night. Yeah, wow. jumped at night. So, hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and by night, I think it was like, it was like our last jump. We had some weather. It may have been seven, eight o'clock, but yeah. yes, there's a night jump component. That's bad to the bone, man. So, you, you, you graduate West Point, and now you're an officer in the U.S. Army. Yes. I, that's a big deal, man. Oh, thanks. That's, a, that's thanks. awesome, bro. That's uh, Thank you. You know, what was your main um, your main job as an officer once you graduated? So I was my first job was I was a multi-channel satellite platoon leader. So we had these big vans. I had three small vans and three big vans. The small ones were on the they had there's two, right? There was a Humvee that pulled a generator. And then there was another one that had a van on the back, like a steel structure. And we would provide multi-channel satellite communications with that. So I did that job where it were air assaultable and that we could pick up the vans, the smaller ones, under a, a Chinook, take them 150 kilometers, which is about 30 miles, and then drop them. Ah, it's about, it's long that, 150 kilometers is, well, five is three. Yeah, about 30 miles. We'd sit them down, and then we'd have non-line-of-sight communications anywhere in the world. So that was my first job. Then I was executive officer for a company. Then I was a signal officer for an artillery company. Mm. And I boxed and played rugby as well. Rugby. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So what was your um, – what, what, what rank did you end up achieving? I got out uh, – I got out as a first lieutenant. So I got out earlier 
we were offered the voluntary early out as part of the peace dividend. So I got as a first lieutenant. Awesome. Now, what would you say your favorite part about being in the United States military was? I think the camaraderie was 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 probably my favorite. You know, when I was in the military, you're around a lot of people who think like you, a lot of people who value things and have some values. I mean, the military is a very diverse, diverse organization, make no standpoint. But a lot of people have made a commitment to do certain things and stand up and be there when the when the call is granted. So that's that's what I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the relationships. Uh, One of the guys who was at my first post, we're still good friends to the day. Mm. You know, we talk all the time. The guys that I was, guys and gals that I was at West Point with are some of my best friends, people that I can count on that, you know, provide mentorship and leadership. So those things I really enjoy and I really value. And, And so, you know, my daughter's at West Point now and just knowing that we speak the same language, we have the same set of understandings. That's that's just really important. And and also, there's a lot of failure in the military. There's dealing with a lot of failure. What would you say your least favorite part was? I think my least favorite part was being away. You know, I'm I'm really in the family. And on one hand, we feel like there's a stronger call and we're doing this for our family. But being away from family is tough. And I made the decision that I didn't really want to have a my personal decision. Um, I always wondered about having a kid in the military and being away. Um, I know a lot of people do it very successfully and I admire them. And, and, and an older me may have made a different decision, right? As we get older, we see a lot of things we don't see through younger eyes. But I'd say the most difficult thing is, is um, it's being away from family and knowing the gravity of giving orders that could put people in harm's way. Mm. Actually, that's probably more so than the first, right? It's knowing the gravity of giving orders that can put people in harm's way. So you depart from the military life. Yes. Now what? So I got out and then I was looking to figure out what to do. So I worked for a junior military or I got, I was recruited. I'm sorry. Let me back up. I got the aid of a JMO recruiter, right? Which is junior military officer. So at that time, there was the internet. Well, there's no internet to speak of. We're still AOL dial-up. And so there's JMO recruits, I'm still, still out there, who help place military officers in Fortune 500 companies primarily, or companies. And it's interesting because, like, I was reading Jack Welch's book, and he talks about at this time, GE was one of the companies looking for JMO officers to train as black belts and Home Depot and companies like Johnson & Johnson. So I got out from the Army. A recruiter helped me get a job with Johnson & Johnson. So I went from being in Fort Campbell, Kentucky to San Francisco, California. And San Francisco, California doesn't look anything like Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that uh, San Francisco is one of the most beautiful cities in, in America. Probably one of the most beautiful, beautiful cities in the world. I love the Bay. <laughs> so they, they, they gave me a job offer, right? And they sent me, I think before they gave me the offer. They gave me the offer. They said it was contingent to me going out to San Francisco. So they put me up in like an embassy suites in Burlingame, which is like looking at the bay. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, this looks nothing like, I was like blown away. The city is beautiful, mm. you know? So that was my first job that I eventually accepted was selling medical supplies in 
the Northern Bay area or actually on the peninsula. So Stanford University was my biggest house. Mm. And, and were you single at the time? I was single. Um, I was dating my soon to be. Well, initially I wasn't because my wife and I broke up. We got back together. And so I was single. I was covering. I was pretty much selling in surgery. Mm. So, so you go a lot up- of the thought leaders at Stanford, you know, the cardiovascular surgeons, all those guys. So. You know, it's it's really interesting to hear to hear that pathway that you took, man. Because you're from Southeast Texas, you just spent how many years in the military? I spent three years in the military. Plus the four years. West, plus West, plus four years at West yeah. Point. So seven years, give or yes. take. And now you have the opportunity to go back home, but instead you go to San Francisco to sell medical products for Johnson Johnson. Oh, I was a glutton for punishment. Like. That's a great job, to be clear. Like, that is, that was criminal prop, you know, and, and it speaks to, uh, was it a great job? Yes, J&J is known for the J&J way, great leadership. That was an awesome job. But the part of me did want to go back to Texas, right? And so I took that opportunity because it was a challenge. They had Johnson & Johnson Ethicon, which is a division I worked for, they had lost a lot of market share on the peninsula, particularly at Stanford University. And they wanted me to come in and help turn that around. And I did. I was there for two years. After the first year, we were trying to get a foothold to make salary, uh, not salary, to do negotiation for contracts. And after the first year, first year and two months, we'd gotten so much market share that it no longer made sense to do a contract okay which is good for a profit but when you talk about medical efficacy it's 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 a little bit more challenging right now while you were in the bay did you get an apartment or what did that look like i had an apartment it's crazy i had a chance to buy buy a place right and i didn't and you're like yeah, I could have bought a place on, not on the peninsula, but right across in Hayward. This guy knew the builder. It was like 194,000. I was like, man, that's a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and then it was, it was a cute little place. And, and I was, you know, that place was so expensive. I had a cost of living adjustment that they gave me, but it was so expensive to live there. And it just blew your mind. Yeah. But you look at it now, which is one guy always says, if you think real estate's expensive now, right, just wait. Yeah, that's that's true, man. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm curious to see if states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Louisiana are going to stay as affordable as they are. Because I see prices in Houston creeping up, especially like in the loop at least. It's definitely, you know, going up so yeah we'll see yes i i mean i think the price is all i mean for a long time when i was in school in new york i'd be like prices in texas are just so cheap and eventually it makes sense they would come up Mm. and i think there's a certain segment of people in the bay area that are always gonna like living in the bay area there's a lot of people who love the bay area the majority and i don't know if this is still true but the majority of the people that go to school in the bay area go back to the bay area like you go to Berkeley, you go to Stanford. A lot of those people live in the Bay Area. It's just a beautiful city, man. It's a good oh, vibe out there. I it love is. the day. And I, I, I cruise through Palo Alto and oh, man. all those areas and hit up in and out. <laughs> yeah, in and out. Hey, double double animal style. That's it, brother. That's it. You know what trips me out, Ross? Is when I was in the Bay Area, the people were like, East Palo Alto's bad. 
EPA, right? You don't want to go over there. And you go over there and go, man, it ain't bad. And then you kick yourself like, I went over there. It ain't bad. It's like right there, right? Yeah. And you go to Austin. People are like, he's Austin bad. Like, I get my haircut in Austin. It's like right there. It's like right on the other side of the road. And you're like, dude, if only I had known, right? Buy in East Palo Alto, right? EPA is totally different. Yeah. Buy in East Austin, right? It just kills you. You're like, man, I, I drove there. I was like, hey, it ain't. Don't seem that bad to Dude, me. I'm <laughs> kicking myself in the butt for not buying Tesla at 350 a share a couple months ago. Because today at the time we're recording this, Tesla just passed 2K a share. Unbelievable. Dude, you you, you know what's crazy is one of my buddies, and he's kind of a good legend. He just put a hundred he just bought 127 acres. And like two weeks later, you know, Tesla announced and it's like 1.9 miles from his his, his land. He just bought. No way. <laughs> In Texas. In Texas. Right, because people, people are fleeing California, man. Yeah, yeah. He just bought it. He's a, he's a developer, and he's just killing it. He's That's a awesome, classmate man. of mine. As a matter of fact, you probably should, you probably should interview him. He's a great yeah, guy. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, if you can make that connection, man, we'll talk offline. Oh, of course. So you're, you're, you're working for Johnson & Johnson. Now, what happened after that? What did you do? So I worked for J&J, and then I started getting a little homesick. I got married. After a year, I got married, and me and my wife were like, hey, if we're going to live somewhere, we need to live in Jersey, where she's from, or Texas. So I moved to Texas. Um, I worked for a headhunter for a little bit while I tried to figure it out. Then I got a job working for a startup company with a lot of MBAs from Ivy League schools. This is 99. We're all going to be rich. I was director of operations. We did uh, fan loyalty programs for sports teams. And we went from, I was like the fifth employee, went from five to like 40 employees. Mm. Then the, then the dot-com bubble burst. And what happened? The dot-com bubble burst and I got laid off. I went to, uh, I got a job with Computer Associates and after, and I made my mind up to go to grad school. Okay. Where, so, at A&M or? Oh, no. No. <laughs> so I went to Texas. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, UT. Okay. So I, uh, I had, I had applied in California and I hadn't gotten to school. I applied to like six or seven grad schools, and I'd taken like the GMAT like four times, right? And I'd taken the prep course. And so I, Texas, I moved to Texas. I say, hey, I'm gonna try again, after a little spell. So I took like two or three more prep. You know, I took another prep course. I took the GMAT like three more times, and I got into UT. I got waitlisted NYU, and I got into University of Rochester. So I went to Texas, got an MBA in finance. Interesting. Okay. And, so, and to be clear, I got a fellowship, right? A fellowship. There's a consortium of graduate studies and management fellowship, which is for underrepresented minorities. And so my tuition and fees were, were all paid by the fellowship. So you went to UT to grad school for free? Well, I still had to eat and live. <laughs> But tuition and how much? How much would that have costed you out of pocket cash? Oh for man. that type of program. Nah, you know, Texas was relative. Actually, I don't know because I didn't look. But Texas was relatively expensive. But my friends who went to grad school at places like Columbia—well, it's hard. It's hard to compare to someone Columbia. But I know a lot of guys came out of grad school with one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars in debt. Uh, hundred. Yes. Wow. That's uh, that's interesting, man. You know, you. Definitely have been all over the place from everything you're telling me, right? Working different <laughs> jobs, right? Yes. Living in different cities. Yes. Now, while you were going through this whole process down these 
you know, pathways. Were you ever thinking about like the bigger picture? Like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want my life to look like. Or were you just taking jobs to make a paycheck to just kind of coast by? No, man. When I was in it, it was, I mean, when you take a job with Johnson and Johnson and everyone's like, this is great. You got a company car, first job out of the army compensation is awesome. This is it. But in the, you know, but also from my perspective, like, what do I really eventually want to be doing? Well, I was out, and and some to some extent, it's asking for what you want. And I wasn't really good at that early mm-hmm. in my career. I wasn't really good at saying, you know, I know it's kind of intimidating to say I want to move to Texas because I may be perceived badly as a non-loyal employee, but I really want to move to Texas. And can you help me get that? That wasn't a real skill set because I was like, hey, so do you carry on and you do for the company? And, and, and I just wasn't very versed in that. So Johnson John was awesome. Um, it was great, but but the really the hardest thing for me at the, with that job at the time was being alone, mm. because I'd come from an environment with teams, and being alone in my car was was it was tough for me at that point. The, the being alone, driving from appointment to appointment, I it wasn't what I really wanted in my life. Although I'm alone now and it's okay. But at 25, 26, that was difficult for me. When I was working for a startup company, dude, I mean, I was working for with Tim Keyes, whose father was the CEO of Johnson Controls, Matt Gephardt, whose father, Dick Gephardt, run for president, and a couple other guys who had really top-notch MBAs. I think Tim had gone to Stanford, Matt had gone to Northwestern. Right. And then there's a couple. And then we hired guys. Who had, and at that point in my life man, an NBA, you were smart and you had it all figured out. And there was a rising wave of Internet companies. I mean, to put yourself in the moment in 99. The Internet bubble was huge. Right. Mm-hmm. It was an inflating bubble. And so we thought we we're going to take the company public. I was a key employee. Those things were all great until I remember when Living.com went bankrupt. Right. And all these companies start popping and it's like, holy cow, I got a new house and a kid. What are you going to do? Computer associates. I didn't really say as a long term job. I had to feed my family. But my I was on grad school at the time. Mm. I mean, I was like, hey, I want to figure out how finance works. That's just it. You know, now there's a lot to be said for sticking one place and gutting it out. I mean, I know a lot of people have done very well. So you get the MBA. Yes. Which. I'm I, I'm I'm sure that was pretty difficult. To, it was uh, tough. Some was tough, tough horses. It, it was tough, but it wasn't West Point tough. I mean. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, you, know, you yeah. graduate West Point. I mean, of course. Yeah, I don't think too many yeah. things are, 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 yeah. are tougher than that. But uh, you know, you you get the MBA, right? Now yes. you got this piece of paper, right? Master's uh, Master's degree. Yes. In business. Uh, what what do you do? Do you start applying for? Do you do you get placed in a position? Do you start applying for companies? What well, remember, I had a wife during grad school, and I had a I started grad school with a one year old kid, right? Mm-hmm. And my wife took the first year off. The second year, she worked. So it was the stress came from hey, I'm taking this degree. I don't know if I'm get a job. Remember, oh one everything Austin in oh one was nothing like Austin now. They were shuttering buildings. It went from a, hey, we're all going to make it to, oh, my gosh, the NASDAQ's crashed. All these companies are X. Dell's laying off. Remember, in Austin, you had the Dellionaires, right? So the late, the mid-90s had created a lot of millionaires in, in Austin from Dell. 
and associated companies. You had Samsung, all this. So in 01, Austin was like, holy cow, what are we going to do? Internet was still doing, I mean, energy was still doing kind of well for a while, but then Enron blew up, mm. right? So I'm like, what am I going to do? And everyone said, if you're serious, you want to go in finance. And if it's serious about finance, you want to go work in New York. So I wasn't that crazy about New York, but I'm like, I want to work in New York because that's what, if you're serious about finance, you work in New York. So I set upon getting my job as a job on Wall Street. It was my goal. Mm. Eventually getting like a private equity type of thing. So um, I got a job with Merrill Lynch. Um, Merrill Lynch came to interview. And so to be clear, before I went to grad school, I, inter I interned with a, uh, a asset manager and they taught me how to evaluate companies. So that's preparing yourself for the job at hand. So when I got to grad school, I had already evaluated companies as an intern, right? Mm. So it gave me a little bit of advantage when the interviews come up and they go, how do you evaluate a company? I'm like, okay, this boom, boom. So I got jobs that a lot of people that had better grades, I got interviews that a lot of people had better grades were also getting. So when it came time for the Merrill interviews, which my Merrill, like the Merrill team came, you know, September 10th, Merrill was at University of Texas. September 11th, the world changed, mm. right? So I eventually, I made an impression, they, they interviewed me um, they brought me in on, on February 14, 2012, I, as a non-core school. University of Texas is not a core school for Merrill, right? You know, I, at that time, Merrill's core schools were, did they, they, did they have a presence? Yes, they had a presence. Their core schools were the Ivy League schools, right? But I, they brought me in on September 12th, and I went and bought me a new tie, like an $80 tie. My wife thought I was crazy. They flew me up. I didn't realize it would be cold. I had no jacket. <clears throat> I'm going around Ground Zero. I don't know if you remember Ground Zero, what it looked like before they you know, rebuilt the path, right? Mm -hmm. Going around Ground Zero, and I'm looking. I'm feeling devastated. I'm like, look, we got to rebuild this. I'll be a part of that. And I get an interview on. The, I get an interview that day. I go through like five interviews. Last interview, they're like, hey, you did well. We want to give you an offer for internship. Oh, bro, that's huge, right? Mm. So I was like one of the first people in my job. And, and not only that, at the time, it came with like a, I don't know, like a $10,000 sign-in bonus or something, maybe five. But that was big when you're in school. So I got an interview. I interned. I went up there to intern. I'm like, I'm going to get a job. I got offered a job with, I think, another signing bonus, like 25 or so after. And, and I was set. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Now, did, so, did the did, did the wife come up with you or? Not during the summer. I mostly was there by myself. I stayed with my mother-in-law in Union and commuted in. Okay. So you right? were you were willing to be away from your family to go take this internship in New York? Yeah, I was. I was. And she was. She came up to visit a couple of times, but I interned in New York. and, and That had to be tough, I, right? It is, it is, but I started liking the city. I mean, the city was, I started realizing what New York was really like. Um, and I was like, wow, I can see myself living here. I know it's going to be challenging. And it was, but. So you got this Southeast Texas boy on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I came up and I, um, I, I, I rotated to a lot of programs. And I wound up on the currency desk. Mm. And uh, eventually that's where my offer came from. I eventually was on the currency desk covering hedge funds, pension funds, and commodity trading advisors. That's a sexy position. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
that's like the, the you know the, the the dream, man. You know, you got the the Wall Street gig, yeah. the nice apartment with this yeah. beautiful view. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the dream, man. You know, yeah, yeah. You hopping, you know, you get in the car service to go go hop on the on the, on the boat. Yeah, you know, you got to be on the desk at six o'clock. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was yeah, fun. yeah. That's uh. Yeah. Definitely a very fast-paced environment. Um, oh, it's a very stressful environment too. Um, I've only been down there at the Wall Street a handful of times. I mean, that yeah, it, it's it's crazy what's going on right now with COVID yeah. and everything because uh, you know a lot of these places are empty. You know, yeah, used to, well, we were at yeah we were at two fifty VC right, which is right over by the Winter Garden. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, right right across from the right next to the Merck. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. I. You know where the Mercantile Exchange is. You know where the, you know where the Winter Garden is, right? You go all the way down to the end. I know where the, the I know where the bull the bull is. Is it by okay, the bull? Okay, not the bull, not okay. the bull. So if you come back, back uh, if you go back towards the Hudson from okay. the bull, because every that's why I said every every firm on Wall Street isn't really on Wall Street. I, right? It's in the vicinity. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a little. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's not that far. It's like a mile. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. Wall Street is. Obviously, a, a term, physical yeah, location, no. but it's yeah, a term exactly. for you know you yes. can have an avenue on Fifth off Fifth Avenue, so, you know, <laughs> working on Wall Street. You know, I get it. <laughs> That's a good point. I guess yeah. I'm being too technical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I get yeah. it. I get it. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's super cool, man. And you know, obviously, right now you're not with Merrill anymore, right? No. Um, no. You departed. Why was that? Um, one, I was laid off, right? <laughs> so to be clear, um, banks have an up or out policy. And, and it's funny because people say it's competitive, but what that looks like is very challenging. I mean, you have to go out and get your own clients. Um, you have to, you know, banks are bringing in people every year in a place like Merrill, they're, they're cutting 10% every year. Hey, we had a great year, we're still cutting people. So I was okay. laid off. Yeah, I was laid off um, and I went to another bank. In New York? Yeah. It's a matter of time. I mean, at banks, it's, I mean, yeah. not to say it, but either you're going to become president or eventually you'll be laid off. No shit. Dude, so yeah. when I was- So then uh, I went to, I went to two other banks, right? So I went to Dresdner. Yeah. I worked there and I, you're like, oh man, I'm like, dude, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Right. So I worked there for right at three years and I was laid off. And then I went to, and it's, it's some of the things, it's funny because I have a partner. We talk about banks. I mean, some of the things you see at banks are just, it's just a different world. Right. Working on a foreign exchange desk is like the wild, wild west. So. But what I took from it and the lessons I hear, I mean, my manager, who I thought was probably one of the toughest managers I ever had. I have like messages she's given me, you know, tons and tons of times in my head. You know, when I was uh, when I was like 18, I responded to this Craigslist ad yeah. to go work on Wall Street. Yeah. And this is like. Wolf of Wall Street movie yeah. style. I go yes. in there, huge fancy building, man. Yeah. I bought a suit from Sears. <laughs> I had every intention of returning it after the interview. I was yes. broke, man. Broke is a joke. So I show up to this interview, man. They wine and dine you and everything. They sit you down in the conference room. You probably know this well. Tell me they're going to pay me like 200 bucks a week <laughs> to make a thousand phone calls a day. <laughs> In the boiler room, and I'm like, yeah. they're like, yeah, and then you know, we'll pay for the series seven, and you'll become a junior broker, and yeah. da, 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 da. yeah, and I'm like, man, dude, 
I'm going to be losing money taking the train to work every day. Like, I can't afford that. Well, so I well, didn't take the position. But yeah, then the well, place the funny, got busted by the FBI the day, like two weeks later for wow. running a boiler room. Well, the funny thing is, not the not-so-funny thing, is you, you just see so much. Like the deal flow you see, the people, the intelligence and savviness, right, of the individuals you deal with, it's such a high level, probably the highest I've ever been. Like just raw smarts. I mean, I had a boss who could name every capital in the world. He's like, you can't stump me. I'm like, oh, freaking Montenegro or whatever. He's like, oh, boom. We were like, ah. So that was that was very. Uh, the Ivy League was, guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a warden guy, warden NBA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's all that, but also the the like seeing what's going on in the world, like as it unfolds, as well as. Um, you know, unfortunately, seeing what happens when people make mistakes managing capital. Mm. And and one of the things I always say is anybody can blow up. Anybody can blow up. And, and you know, being the arms of and feed of the people who are closing out trades. So, example, you know, when I was at um, a bank, not Merrill, we had one of my biggest clients was Amaranth, which was uh, a multi-strat firm. And uh, Brian Hunter, who was an oil trader, like he blew up. And so my buddy was on paternity leave and he's calling going, Hey, we need to close out all our trades. And, you know, you execute the trades. And then mm-hmm. 10 minutes later, you see on CNBC, a, a, a footer going, this firm, you know, suffered 35% losses and they'll be showing it shut in their doors. And seeing that I think gives in one way, it, it lets you know that everything well, that, that we can all fail right? And that failure is not the death knoll. People do come back from failure. Um, Barton Biggs, you read his book, you know, Hedgehog, he's come back from failure. I mean, there's stories of guys who manage large amounts of capital who have failed and come back. It's how you do it. Do you do it gracefully? Do you do it ethics? And do you, you know, it's not fraud. That's different, right? Failure, we can come back from. And once I think we learn that, we can, we can, I think you have to know that failure is out there and in order to really succeed. I like that man That's powerful You know it's Very interesting to me That Throughout your whole journey The NBA All that stuff Big firms on Wall Street You're now in your own business Where you don't need an NBA Exactly (laughs) But I'm sure that Everything you've done In the past Has set you up for success now You know whether it's You know reading numbers Looking at companies And evaluating them And seeing where you're able to go you know, growth-wise in the future, it's really important, um, you know, in the business world. Because like you said, it's easy to it's easy to screw yourself and blow up and lose money, you know? Yeah. Entrepreneurship is not easy, man. A lot of people don't know, you know, just because you flip a house doesn't mean you're going to make profit. You know, yeah. it's easy to over-budget. Uh, oh, man. So, you know, you have a great story. And, uh, you know, I have... A few more questions for you before we wrap it up oh, here. Go ahead. Number one, man, is knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time, what is one thing that you would do differently? Where? At any point in your life. Like that one thing where it's like, man, if I could just go back to this time period and I could have done this. I mean, I'll take the podcast in consideration and I'll say in regards to real estate that makes sense. It's starting my career. 
I think there's a couple things that I can list that are key things that I would do differently. And I th- like to think they're things I do now. I'd say one is get mentorship. Mm. It's the cheapest money you ever spend. And, and a lot of times people, and even I will chide, oh, that guy's charging. We all agree, that guy's charging, whatever. Well, get a good mentor, right? That's what I'm saying, right? It's like saying, I bought a, you know, I bought a car, it's really bad, and so I should never buy cars. No, get a good mentor. They may cost and they may be free. Find them, seek them out, and, and put something in the bank, right? Mm. Take something out of it. In order to take something out of the bank, you got to put something in the bank. My biggest failures in business have come from not having a good mentor. Now, when I ran my trading company, which we didn't talk about, it's hard to get people because we're all so competitive. But in real estate, there's a lot of guys that are willing to help you out, right? Vet them out and learn how to vet them out. But mentorship, like I told you, I lost $5,000 on my first contract because I didn't ask anybody how to write a real estate contract, mm. right? So mentorship, my I didn't really start taking off until I took, uh, gosh, I can't think of the name, guy's name now, Timai and what's the other guy's name? AC, who's been AC, a, who's been a guest on the show. AC probably, I man, I didn't know you could flip. Hey, do hey, all hey, 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 easy, <laughs> easy, easy, on, on, easy on the on the on the promo of AC, man. <laughs> <laughs> AC, you better you better pay for this sponsorship. No, I didn't I, know you could wholesale a house and talk to AC's class. Yeah, no, AC's a solid guy, man. He so AC it. helped me out a ton, right? Get started. He he basically allowed me to feed my family, right? Yeah. So I would say mentorship would be the first thing. And two, man, partner. I know you partner well, and it's really helped you out in your business. I was going at alone. I'm like, all these guys are partnering. Man, partner. Mm. Because if you make a good partner, if you're a good partner and you, you can grow your business. Now, if you're doing bad deals, and that's one thing, right? If there's not enough margin, you're going to do a lot of deals. You'll be a deal junkie. So, but you'll never figure it out, right? Like you'll blow up trying to do over leveraging without partners and mentorship. Mentorship and partnering will change your business mm. and allow you to have a business, right? I think one of the things partners do that's really good is they provide accountability. When you're buying a house or when I'm buying a house and I'm going out to get a private loan and nobody's looking at it, you know, there's a, there's a kind of adversarial relationship between any lender and not an adversarial relationship a non-mutually beneficial relationship between any, I don't know if that's the right word. Lenders are on one place and anybody that borrows another money is on another place, right? It's just there. But when you're in a partner, it's like we eat together, bro. Mm. You eat, I, I eat, right? I right? Lenders go, you made a lot of money, that's great. Every lender's going to go, but I, I just got my fee, right? Partners, you eat, we eat. Mm. I, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> I will say, in my opinion, there has to be enough food on the bone, man. You got to be doing but, volume or big deals. But see, that's the same thing when you're by yourself, right? You can go broke doing small deals. In what way? Because you're not making enough margin. So it's, it's, it's almost like you can grow yourself broke, right? <clears throat> so if you're doing small deals, not enough margin, you're going broke and you don't even know it. You're you're moving money from one pile to another, but not making money, Mm, right? You're churning. But when you got a partner, you're like, man, like now, if I'm looking at a deal, I'm saying, is there a hundred K in the deal? Because we both got to eat, right? There's not a hundred K. If you're talking six figure deals. Yeah. I was more so talking about, you know, wholesaling with a partner and you're making a 5k spread and it's like 2,500 bucks a piece 
Well, you have <sighs> to do volume to be able to eat because yeah. you know. But I, exactly. I, I agree. Like like you said earlier, you're not mechanically inclined. Neither am I. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I kid you not. I called the maintenance team to come change the light bulbs in the shield because I'm not breaking my neck. There. I'm there. Yeah. People, people go, do you do it yourself? I'm like, no, I write checks well. Yeah. So that's the thing. That's it, man. That's me. That's so the thing. I had a partner in my real estate business who was mechanically inclined and worked yeah. out great, you know? So I yeah. agree with you 100%, you know? Yeah. And so that's the thing. You know, I guess got to be a lot of meat on the bone. I'm like, yeah, that's how businesses work, right? Mm-hmm. They have margin criteria. And then you start going, no, 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 yes. Right? No, 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 yes. So that's the thing. I mean, you may have to do bigger deals. You have to do stuff that's maybe a little bit more complex. You got to find that margin. But now when you find it, it's like, thing, we can now we can eat. We can mm-hmm. all eat. I like it, and man. You so that's what I think, man. Mentorship and partnering. Boom. I mean, I, I got a, I got guys I talk to every night. I mean, I got one guy, we, we chop it up every night. And we're like, okay, I'm seeing this. And I think the third thing is an idea of abundance. If you if you have an idea of abundance, or once I start realizing abundance, stuff starts coming back to you. There's enough, there's enough deals out there for me to eat and you to eat. You're like, oh, it's competitive. We need to get something that's not competitive. Right, so Portis, not Portis, you know, Portis Five Forces, right, which is modeling learning grad school, which basically says, look at the market you're in and figure out it's where you need to be. Right, if you have no power and no control, you need to be somewhere else. Right, if I'm if I'm chasing 135 thousand dollar houses, and why? Like, it's like when I was trading, um, I talked to a guy who's who's basically worked for one of the biggest firms, right, and he mentored me. He said, you know what? He said two things. What? One, this is the business we've chosen. You know what movie that's from? Godfather. I, can you believe it or not? I've never seen The Godfather. Oh, you, dude, you're a t- you're, I, you're, never You've never seen, seen The Godfather? I've never seen it, man. He said, this is the business we've chosen, right? This business we've chosen, right? And then he said, no one's making you trade. No one's making you buy houses. Mm. Right? No one said, hey, Ross, you need to go buy a house today. So Fair play. Yeah, so, you know, to get back to the, to the thing of that, realize that there's enough deals out there for everybody. There really, there really is, man. There really is enough. I, lo- I love the abundance mindset because yeah. there is so much money in this world to be made. And a lot of people get that get started think like, oh, well, in Houston, you know, there's 100 wholesalers in, you know, Katy. That means I can't do it. Well, that's not true. You can do it. You might right? not need to be wholesaling. <laughs> right? might, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. there's a difference between abundance and like adjust, adjustments, right? Yeah. Like yeah. If there's an influx, like, dude, when I was buying back 2015 Pasadena, I was getting laughed at for buying in Pasadena because everybody wanted to buy Heights, Spring yeah. Branch. Now, Pasadena is exploding. You got people yeah. doing de- It's cool to be in Pasadena now. So yeah. like, ah, I got to adjust a little bit. But, you know, my first house I bought was. There. My first house I bought was in Pasadena. I didn't keep it. I should have. I sold. I sold it twice though. Yeah. I sold it like 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 six weeks ago. But the point is, you know, mentorship helps you. It should help you evolve, right? Because markets change. They just do. They're like a person. They change, and as they become mature, or then your strategy may have to change. So, that's the that's the thinking part of the business, right? 
we got to think and analyze our business. And if we're just chop, 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 the market's going to change. And you go like, man, it's too tough. It's too frustrating. It's too hard. Get someone else who can look at it and go, have you thought about this? Like I said, have you thought about building? You're like, I don't know. I don't build. I'm like, should you? I thought about it. Yeah. So, so a lot of times getting someone going, man, I chopped up something. You look at my board. You're like, hey, Roger's doing that. That cat ain't smarter than me. He ain't working harder than me. I could do 10 houses. I don't right? know, man. You NBA, I, US Army officer, <laughs> jumping out dude. of planes. I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> just, just, just take the idea, man. Hey, smooth ships don't make good captains, right? Mm, my man. You know, yeah. Broderick, I ask every guest on the show the same question. I'd like to extend that question to you. That's okay. Yes. So far in your entire life, what has been the best advice that you've ever received? Like that one piece of advice that you just live your life by? Ooh, gosh. One piece of advice. Yeah, like that one golden nugget that you just well, you I, know, carry with I, you. I think attitude matters, right? And And... It's funny you asked me a question, you know, before. I think attitude matters. It's the one thing you have complete control of, right? It's like you walk out of the house, you step your, you put your foot in, you know, some cow patty, right? You can go, you know what, that sucks. I'm going to have a horrible day. And so I've had friends tell me, they go, Broderick, you got, you know, you got a high threshold for pain. I clearly think it's all going to work out in the end. Right? Oh, you know, I did. You asked me one thing I wish I'd have done differently. I, I, I had a six-figure paycheck and I put it back in the, in the, in the, into real estate instead of paying off some debt. And it, it caused some issues, right? That I'm working out to the day, you know, cause I made some bad decisions, but I still think it's going to work out in the end. And now I'm having a, you know, a banner year. I'm having my best year I've ever had ever mm. by far. Right. Mm. But, but your attitude is the only thing. My attitude is the only thing I control. Hey, this sucks. You know, you know what? It'll all be better tomorrow and follow it up. And I think people gravitate toward attitude. They start to attitude to track. You know, I'm vibing. Mm. Right? We've got along. We've only talked probably four or five times ever, right? But you, hey, Ross, man, that guy, my first time I met you, I was like, man, that guy's loud. He's talking about your crap. I go, you know what? He thinks he's going to make it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You think you're going to make it, right? You know what? There's a lot of value in that. I probably can learn something from this kid, right? You know, we've never chopped it up. I'm like, look. This kid's like, look, I'm here. You see me. You know what I'm doing. You know what I stand for. Mm. So I respect attitude. that, man. Thank attitude. you. You know, dude, do you ever get mad? Who, me? Yeah. Yes. Why? Because, you know, every time I have <laughs> talked to you or seen you in, in, in a network, and you're always happy. You're always happy. <laughs> you're always happy, smiling, cracking jokes, something. Uh, it's hard for me to picture you, like, angry oh, I get off. angry I get angry I had a deal that didn't that closed and didn't fun yesterday I got a little angry but um you know I I I heard some other day and they're they talking about what you you know it's not have to it's not want to it's I get to mm. think about what we get to do like we're sitting here chopping it up right we get to do that your day is probably predicated on what you want to do you mm. get to do that we're blessed bro like by far you fact. could live in Houston, Dallas, or New York on your choosing because of, you know, the the, the moves you're making. Mm, that's 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 a great way to look at it, right? It's, <laughs> right? it's a privilege every day. Yeah, I do. Blessing, Come on, think man. about it. 
think about what you get to do. You get to talk to interesting people. You know, people, you call me, I didn't even hesitate. You want to do it? I say, yeah, chop it up. Mm. That's a great perspective, man. It really is. Because it's easy to forget that when there's so much going on and so much chaos out there in the world and the media wants you to be pissed off and upset all the time. And, yeah. you know, and you're absolutely right, man. So you get yeah. to do certain things it and it's a blessing. And another thing, one more thing, if I may. Right. Absolutely. Um, I remember in 2011-ish, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine and he had done well. He had bought, he had started a fund, sold it to Morgan Stanley. I said, man, what's it like making money or something like that? He's like, dude, making money is easy. He goes, what you want is influence. Mm. Making money is easy. It, it, well, essentially, yes. It is, right? It like, is. It, it is. You can, you, you see people sacrifice, whatever. Just making money is easy. Keeping money is challenging. But what you really want is influence. You want people to go, hey, you know what? I, Ross, I got a problem. How I solve this? Mm. That's how you really make money, right? Hey, I got a problem or... You know, I'm thinking about doing this idea. Can you help me out? Or when you get to that point, you know, like I got a guy I talk to all the time. He's like, man, you're doing bigger deals. Eventually, I'm going to be buying from you and you're going to be buying from me. We're going to be plotting and doing this. I'm like, wow. Yeah, man. So, influence. influence. I agree, bro. That's uh, th- my true purpose, I believe, is to impact. You know, I love yeah. impacting. So I absolutely agree with you on that, man. And uh, with that being said, Broderick, dude, you got to write a book, my man. You got <laughs> because, dude, I only got an hour on this podcast, but I, I, I could keep going for a couple more, man. You got a lot to share, bro. Oh, thanks, man. You I pre- hey, I'm flattered that you asked me. Um, Absolutely, like I say, I'm flattered, and, and I hope you do well. I really wish you well. I'm proud of you with your little girl, right? Little baby, man. Seven, little baby. seven months, brother. Seven months, bro. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy for you, man. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, bro. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to reach out to you. I'll put your socials in the uh, show notes, man, people to give you some feedback and connect with you. And uh, we're land key, land key text, right? So, yeah, wait, land key, Uh, land key. So you can hit us up. We're on uh, Instagram, we're on Facebook, land key text. That sounded like a land key, key. just basically land key and then underscore TX for text. Although we'd like to be worldwide, 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 you can see our pictures of our land. You can see us out there chopping it up, all that. So I'll uh, I'll link it in the show notes, man. And with that being said, enjoy the night, bro. Thanks. Enjoy.